It's good to see you this morning. Welcome back, SFA. Good to see you guys this morning. Y'all awake yet? The semester started. We are in our final installment of this little three-part series that we've been doing entitled, Who Do You Say That I Am? And that's really the question that we've been exploring over these last few weeks. And we've said that really, it seems as though in the new year, the question that Jesus posed to his disciples, who do you say that I am, is the most important question that we could ask uh, in, our, in our year, in our everyday, in our lifetime. This is the question. And Jesus claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be the son of man. And then he, he punctuated those claims by dying and being, and, and being raised on the third day and bringing about for us, each one of us, a tension that we are faced with. If he really is the son of God and the son of man, what is it that I'm going to do about that? That seems to be the question, not just what is my response uh, to the answer in an academic way, but what does that mean about my life? If Jesus is the son of God and the son of man, what does that mean about my life? And last week, we looked at that title. We explored the theme of Jesus being the Son of Man. And this week, uh, we're going to look at the title and the theme, the Son of God. We're going to trace that. So last week, I said, get your hard hats and your track shoes on. This week, I think maybe a little less hard hat. I don't know. You'll have to determine that. But a little more track shoes, okay? We're going to do a lot. We're going to summarize big chunks of the Old Testament. We're going to do two different Gospels today. Uh, so, And then we're going to have communion. So we got a lot to do this morning. I'm excited about this morning. Listen, if you've been here long, I just want to recommend to you a quick resource as you uh, as we get started this morning. But if you've been here long, you have heard me quote uh, from the, and, and utilize the work that's being put out by Bible Project. Their, their pr uh, material is an essential part of my study and preparation. I recommend it to a lot of people as they're going, how do I start to read my Bible? How do I know, you know what different books are about? And how, it's a great, great resource. And uh, they, they've got a series uh, entitled The Firstborn. And uh, this series, it's a podcast series that they do. Uh, it's several different parts. It's long. It's, there's a lot of material in there. But some of that interacts with what we're going to study this morning. And if you're interested in diving really deep into this, uh, some of the ideas we're going to cover, I would highly recommend that. But for most of us, if I say this title, the Son of God, most of us uh, think about that title as a deeply theological title. In the instances where we've heard it, where we've, where we've listened to it, maybe in different Bible studies or preaching, what we're talking about is a way of thinking of the uniqueness of Jesus as it relates to being part of the Trinity. This is talking about Jesus as part of the triune nature of God. And it can feel like, I think, when we use it in this way, I can feel to us like somehow this title, Son of God, existed in this eternal theological dictionary, and the New Testament writers were looking for a way to describe Jesus, and they went, ah, that will do, Son of God, that is going to, uh, that's going to work perfectly, it's a way we can talk about all the aspects of Jesus. Now, of course, you know that there is no such thing as an eternal theological dictionary, and that that's not how the New Testament was written, but it can feel that way. And when we think about the title Son of God, when we think about the way in which the New Testament writers used that phrase, if we're thinking that way, we actually are gonna miss out 
on all of the different nuanced ways that they used that phrase for, to help us understand exactly who Jesus was and all of the ways that Jesus fulfilled and brought together many of the themes that were explored in the Old Testament. So that's where I want to start this morning is trying to summarize what is the Son of God as it relates to the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament. And shockingly, where do you think this adventure for us is going to begin? Where do we begin? Almost every sermon here at Fredonia Hill, it's in the book of Genesis. Okay, so good. Very good. Very good. By the way, if you don't have a copy of scripture as we are opening that up this morning, I would really encourage you to stop into our resource center out these double doors. We'd love to send you home uh, with, with a Bible. But this, this theme, the Son of God, shows up in a few different ways in the Old Testament. But the first place that it's going to show up is in Genesis, where Adam is referred to as the first born son. Now, what in the world does that mean? If Adam is this firstborn son, this son of God, what in the world does that mean? Well, here in this explanation and in other places, what that word is doing, what that phrase is doing is it's describing God's chosen human representative. So the word Adam means human. And we know that in Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve, but he also gives them a job, doesn't he? And that job is for them to represent him in creation. And I just met with a Sunday school class and we talked about this a little bit, which the point is that they were supposed to bring God's wisdom and beauty and justice into the world and reflect the praises of God, the, the praises of creation back to God. That was their job. They were God's representative and they were uniquely chosen. God uniquely crafted and created them and chose them and set them in a specific place so that they could be his representative. Well, this theme of being God's chosen human representative shows up all throughout the Old Testament. We see this from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses. God talks about Israel as his firstborn son. Do you remember that in the book of Exodus when he's, when he's uh, speaking to Pharaoh? He says, Israel is my firstborn son. We see this applied to David and then specifically after David, the line of kings that would come after David are said to be God's representatives, God's chosen representatives. But there's a theme, a story, a narrative theme that's also wrapped up in this title. See, there are unique people throughout scripture that are chosen to be God's representatives, but they play out the same story just in different ways over and over again. And that is the same story that takes place in Genesis chapter three, where Adam and Eve failed to be the representatives that God created them and called them to be. So too does every other one in the line of Adam fail to be God's representatives as they have been chosen and elected to be. Israel, over and over and over again, though called and set aside to be God's covenant people, fails to live into that title. They're either sabotaged by others, they could be sabotaged by their own greed or power, whatever it is, they continue to fail. And yet, right next to that, and that, this strand of scripture, this prophetic strand of scripture that lives alongside each failure of these human representatives is a promise, a promise that someday 
there would be a son of God, a human representative who would not fail where all the others have failed. And this promise gets connected back to Genesis chapter three, where God said that this human representative, this wounded human would crush the power of the serpent. You remember that passage? It's a powerful passage where the seed of, of uh, Adam and Eve is said to crush the head of the serpent. It's a picture of this human being, this wounded human who would someday crush the power of the serpent who has just, uh, just tempted and, uh, and led Adam and Eve into sin. But Every time we see one of these human representatives, they fail. And yet God continues to promise that someday, someday, there would be one who would not fail. Interestingly enough, Isaiah tells us that this redeemer, this serpent crusher, would be a king from David's line, would be one of these representative kings. But this one would be the lowest of the low. This would be a despised and rejected one. But who would be elevated to an unbelievable status to share in God's glory because of the laying down of his life? This is the strand in Isaiah of the suffering servant. The other way that this phrase is used in the Old Testament is one familiar to us because we covered this in our series on spiritual warfare. But the other way that the word sons of God, that phrase, is used is to refer to heavenly creatures, members of God's staff team. We talked about this with the word, the little Elohim word, not the capital Elohim, but the little Elohim word. This phrase, sons of God, just is a reference to heavenly creatures, creatures whose nature is the heavens, who are members of God's staff team. And so the point is, you're going, well, okay, what's the point? The point is that at the end of the Old Testament, when we are about to turn the page over into the book of Matthew, this phrase, son of God, is jam-packed with nuance and meaning. Do you see that? There's a lot going on within that word. There are many different ways that that would evoke all sorts of narrative image from throughout the story of scripture. But, the, but at the end of the Old Testament, to be honest, it's just full of mystery. There's no conclusion to this identity. Is this one? Is this many? Is this humans? Is this Israel? What is going on within this phrase as we go into the New Testament? Now, I've always said that if you are wanting a straight answer in the Gospels, you go to the book of Mark. Mark is no frills, no frills gospel. The gospel of Mark reads like a comic book. It's just action sequence after action sequence after action sequence. Mark just basically says, here it is, you figure it out. This is the truth you figured out. I like Mark, okay? I'm a huge fan of him just getting straight to the point. But when we turn the page, so I want you to open to Mark chapter one, and we're going to read one verse. Mark chapter one. So what we're looking for here as we're about to read this is how do the gospel writers utilize this title, this theme, son of God, and apply it to Jesus? Well, here's what Mark says. You ready for this? I told you he was straightforward. Verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. 
Thank you. (laughs) Oh, my word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, here's the way that Mark... Now, if if you've been with us a little bit, you kind of know what's packed. We've, We've worked on some of these words. You know what's packed within these words. The word gospel... It's not a, really a new thing that's come up. The word gospel means good news. And it's the good news message of God's rescue plan. This goes all the way back to the, the, the prophetic speech that we've talked about in the Old Testament. The, the good news announcement that God is going to rescue things. That things are going to turn around. That he is at work. That's the good news. It's firmly rooted in the Old Testament. So Mark picks this up and uses the word gospel, the good news. He says, this is the good news of Jesus, Messiah. He uses the, the word Messiah. And we know what is packed within that. The Messiah was one that was, again, prophesied in the Old Testament. This is the one who would represent Israel, who would be faithful where Israel failed, who would give his life. This was densely packed. So, So Mark says, this is the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. He's told us everything in one sentence. Now, here's the way that Mark's gospel works. He basically tells us everything in one sentence. And then the rest of Mark's story is going to unfold in a way that says, see, I told you so. See, there it is again. I told you so. Every story Mark tells is going to come back to the statement that he made in his very opening verse. The whole book is laid out to come back to that very opening phrase that tells us exactly who Jesus is. In a sense, what Mark is doing is actually the same thing that we're doing in this series. Mark is saying, this is who Jesus is. Here's the story that backs it up. Now, what are you gonna do about that? How is your life going to change or be impacted based on exactly who I've told you and demonstrated that Jesus actually is? So he's saying, who is Jesus and what are you going to do about it? Now, Mark packs this phrase, the son of God, into his opening. And I want to show you a couple of things that, are, that really are going to stand out. So watch what Mark does. He then tells us about John the Baptist. He goes through the narrative about John the Baptist. And then let's pick up in verse nine. In verse nine, it says, this is a call to worship. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now again, just like in Mark, there's a whole lot packed in here. But notice that the vision that Jesus has as he is being brought up out of the water, the thing that he sees is is that the heavens are being torn open. What is this supposed to bring our mind back to? You remember Jacob running from Esau, his brother, and he's out in the wilderness and he has a vision of the heavens being torn open and there's a ladder that descends from the heavens to the earth and angels are ascending and descending on the ladder. Here, Jesus sees that very same thing. The heavens are being torn open. This connection point between the heavens and the earth is now being linked directly to Jesus. So that's the way that it opens. But then there's this voice, the voice of the Father speaks from heaven and says, 
you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. Now, you might just think that Jesus was getting an attaboy kind of moment from his father, right? That this is just, there's some hard things coming and here's a little pat you on the back uh, thing to say. But actually that's not it at all. This is a revealing of who Jesus is and very similar to Mark chapter one, verse one. If we're reading it carefully, what you'll realize is in this phrase, there are three distinct connections to the Old Testament. And I wanna take you through those here really quick. The first thing that we read is the phrase, beloved son. You are my beloved. And that word is important, that beloved son word. What is that from? That phrase is from Genesis chapter 22, when God tells uh, Abraham that his beloved son is going to be required, his beloved son would have to lay down his life, would have to be bound and give his life as an offering to the Lord. And God packs within that moment so much meaning about Jesus who is to come. But this phrase, uh, the requiring of a beloved son as an offering before the Lord, as a blood offering before the Lord is directly linked to Genesis chapter 22. Now, of course, we know in that story, God provides a substitute ram, again, pointing to who Jesus is. The next part the naming of a son, you are my son, is directly linked to Psalm chapter two. Now, if you're a note taker, just jot all these down. You can go review at home. We're going through a lot quickly. What's interesting is in Psalm chapter two, we have this, this son of God theme. And in the Psalm, the psalmist says that the nations are raging against the Lord. The nations are raging against the Lord. There is a human rebellion against the Lord and it describes the Lord in the midst of this rebellion. It describes the Lord as stepping back, as seeing the rebellion of humanity. And it says that he laughs, that he laughs at the rebellion of kings that think they might overthrow the one true God. And it says this, God says, as he laughs, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What's this talking about? God is saying, I have set my king. What does that bring to our mind? The kings, these human representatives in the line of David. I have set my human anointed ruler on Zion, my holy hill. And though the nations rage, I have a plan. And that plan is being worked out in and through this king that I have set on Zion, my holy hill. Now, this, it gets more interesting in Psalm chapter two. I wanna read this to you, verse seven and eight. So then the king of Psalm two, the one that has been set on the holy hill, responds. There's a response in Psalm chapter two. And here's what, the, here's what this king says. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Listen to this. He says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. 
So in the midst of the raging of the nations, in the midst of the rebellion of humanity, God laughs because God has a plan and God's plan is gonna come to fruition through this one that he has anointed and called and set on this holy mountain. And what does that king say? That king says that I will bring the nations to Yahweh. The nations are your heritage. I will bring the nations to worship you. So in Psalm 2, the emphasis is on God's representative, a son of God who will bring about the worship of the nations. This is a lot in one sentence, isn't it? The final part of this statement, you're my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, that phrase, in you I am well pleased, comes from Isaiah chapter 42 in verse 1 through 4. It says, behold, my servant whom I'm uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Do you see the connection between what Jesus is experiencing? He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This is about the suffering servant that Isaiah has prophesied about who will give his life, lay down his life for the sake of redemption. So what's happening in this moment that Mark is telling us about? Mark has just said, this is the good news of Jesus who is the Messiah, the Son of God, and he takes us into this scene where what, what is happening here? Well, in this moment, God is pulling back the curtain and revealing exactly who Jesus is. I think it's easy for us to maybe read this and think this is where Jesus becomes who he will be, but that's not the case at all. What's happening here is there is a revealing what's happening in the very opening pages of the gospels. And all the gospel writers do this in a unique way is they are immediately saying, this is who Jesus is. This is where all of the promise of scripture is now converging on him. God is pulling back the curtain and revealing who Jesus is is all of those themes are coming into fruition in this one who is the son of God. Now, notice what Luke does. Go over to the gospel of Luke. Now I'm gonna do a lot of scanning and moving quickly here, but just move to your right and go to the book of Luke. What does Luke do? How does he tell the story? Well, the first thing is, and we all know this from Christmas time, Luke, we always read from Luke because Luke gives us the birth story. And what does the birth story entail? Why does Luke tell us this story? Well, first thing we get from Luke is that Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Luke is telling us that Jesus is the same in nature and essence as the Father, but is taken on flesh for our behalf. He says that he's born biologically as a son of Mary telling us that the unique son has entered space and time as a human being born of a virgin in the line of Adam and David. He also tells us, Luke also tells us that he's an adopted son of Joseph. And in Joseph's line is traced all the way back through David, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Adam, who in Luke's gospel, chapter three, verse 38, Adam is called 
a son of God. This human representative, Luke invokes this term for us to realize all of the complexity that is in Jesus and how it's all converging on him. So when we look at both Mark and we look at Luke, let's be really, really clear. The gospel writers are answering some major questions for us here. The first question, does being the son of God mean that Jesus is one in essence and nature with the father? Yes. That's one of the things that son of God is talking about. Does being the son of God mean that Jesus has taken on the identity of a human? Yes. Does being the son of God mean that Jesus is God's chosen human representative who will establish justice in the nations? Yes. Does being the son of God mean that Jesus is the suffering servant who will be led by the spirit and give his life as an offering for the sin of humanity? Yes. Does being the son of God mean that Jesus is the wounded human who will crush the head of the serpent? Yes. The point is that if all we do is go, okay, let's grab from our theological dictionary, grab this phrase, son of God, and, 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 and look at it in that way, we will miss all that is held within that title, all of the ways in which every single one of God's promises for the redemption of all creation come to fruition in and through the one who is the son of God. The gospel writers then take an interesting turn. And this will maybe make sense to you now. Right after these, this, uh, these birth narratives and baptism, they take us into Jesus's confrontation with the deceiver in the wilderness. Now in Luke chapter four, and this is your homework, you can read this at home, but in Luke chapter four, what does the deceiver say to Jesus? He says, if you really are, what do you think? The son of God. Do you see this? If you really are the son of God, and then notice what he says, or notice what he does. He takes him through, Jesus through, after Jesus has fasted and prayed in the wilderness for 40 days, he has this encounter, and then the deceiver takes him through a series of temptations. And that series of temptations begins with this question, if you really are the son of God, and then he tempts Jesus with food and power. Now, if you've read your Bibles, that ought to sound very, 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 very familiar. If you really are God's human representative, then follows temptation with food and power. Where else, maybe, have we seen that story? It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three. Do you see? Where God's human representative, when tempted with food and power, fail the test. It's in that moment where the answer, are you really the son of God, where the answer ultimately for Adam is, in a way, yes, but really, no. I'm a failed version of what the true righteous one is supposed to look like. 
And Mark tells us here he is, the son of God, the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. And then Jesus goes out into the wilderness and faces the serpent head on. And in the same temptation, are you really the son of God? And if so, then what? And he tempts him. And what does Jesus do? Jesus overcomes that temptation with the reliance on God's Word, thus solidifying and proving and setting into motion the rest of the dominoes that are gonna fall in the gospel narrative because what Jesus is gonna do is he's gonna own the deceiver right there in that moment. He's gonna be faithful where every other human representative failed because he is on his way to being the holy representative, the one that will completely and fully overcome the enemy in the giving of his life like the suffering servant and the overcoming of sin, of the power of sin and death in the grave in his resurrection. And so Jesus is kicking it and taking names the rest of the way. Okay? He overcomes here, but then notice what happens afterwards. Read your story. Then he goes and he heals the sick and he casts out demons and he teaches with power because he is the son. The entire narrative from that moment all the way through proves over and over and over again the answer to the question of the deceiver, are you really the son? And it's punctuated through the deceiver's ultimate defeat when Jesus gives his life and is raised from the dead. It's in the giving of his life and his resurrection from the dead that he puts an end to the tyrannical rule of sin, death, and evil, and he inaugurate God, inaugurates God's kingdom on the earth. And listen, today, those of us that place our faith in him, we can participate in his resurrection life, and by the power of the Spirit, we can push back darkness while awaiting his return where the kingdom will be fully established and all creation will be renewed. So why does Jesus being the son of God matter to you and me? Hopefully it's obvious at this point. But if I'm following the train of thought from the gospel writers, each one of them has demonstrated how Jesus is the son of God and how in him all of the promises of God have been fulfilled. And to them... What that means is that the entire story of the redemption of creation is wrapped up in Jesus. This is no small thing for them to say he is the son of God. What that means is that in Jesus, the whole story of the redemption of all of creation is wrapped up in him. And I think the idea is, is we're supposed to, as we read this gospel account, the idea is was when that reality hits you and me, that the redemption of humanity is wrapped up in him, when that hits us, we are given the opportunity for our story, which is in deep need of redemption, to be enveloped by his story. You and I are given the opportunity to allow our story to then bleed into and feed into his. The story of Jesus was always, from the very beginning, intended to be my story. If he is the rescue of all humanity, then that means he's my rescue as well. Yeah. 
if it's in him that the redemption of all of creation is held, this son of God, then it's in the son of God that my life can be restored as well. And I can lay down my life as a offering to him and discover that when that occurs, he graciously gives me his life in return. And in him, I am counted as a righteous son or daughter. And my life is filled with meaning and purpose because of the Messiah. And I then join Mark as one who says, this is the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. Do you see that? Mark is singing the very same song that you and I were created to sing. And that is that when our lives get wrapped up in his, when he rescues and redeems, then he sets us back in a place because we are made righteous in him where we are able to do what we were created to do which was bring wisdom and beauty and justice into the world and bring the praises of creation back to him. And how does all of that happen? In short, the gospel writers would tell us it all happens in the announcement of the good news of Jesus. Not just from my lips, but from the way in which I live my life, I am announcing the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. I'm walking in the fullness of joy and purpose that comes from that union with him because he is who he says that he is. Now this morning, we're going to, uh, we're gonna participate in communion with one another. This is a really, really, really important uh, time for us as a church. And I wanna just, and there's a lot of movement that's about, that is happening. <laughs> but I wanna just, bring you back to the essence of what's happening here. When Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples, he was pulling back this story of the Exodus, this Passover story. And he was telling them how he would be the one that would be the fulfillment of what Passover was pointing to. He was saying that it would be his blood and the breaking of his body that would be the redemption and the freedom of all of creation. And that being joined in covenant with him meant that you and I could be rescued and set free from sin and death and evil. And we could, we could make an exodus from that old life and live in a new place. And this is what Jesus is describing as he takes the Passover meal with his disciples. And he says, he takes the Passover, the bread and the cup. And he says that this is being fulfilled in my body, that I'm going to spill my blood as the blood of the covenant. I'm going to give my body, the suffering servant of the book of Isaiah to be broken, that you might be made new. So the, the, celebration of communion for the church, what we're about to partake in is a reflection on Jesus fulfilling all of the promises of God and us taking it into ourselves, us taking the, the bread and the cup and taking it into ourselves. It shows how we have been totally free and forgiven and changed by the sacrifice of Jesus, that we have been made new, that his life has become ours, that we have been, though dead, now set free and made alive because he, having died, has been risen. This is the testimony of communion. And we take it with one another 
to reflect back on what Jesus has done, but not just to reflect on what Jesus has done, but to remind us of who we are in him. We are those who have been made free. And we have a job, we have an announcement to make that the same body and blood that has rescued me has been shed and broken for the sake of all of humanity. And I am now joining Mark in announcing the good news. So communion is not just a memory. Communion is a propelling into the life that God has called me to live. Are you with me? So we're gonna participate in communion this morning. And just a few things to help you navigate this time. First of all, if you are not a follower of Jesus, that is, that is totally fine. And we are, we are absolutely pleased that you are here with us this morning. But this time is strictly for those that have professed their faith in Jesus, that have repented of their sin and given their life to him and are, and are Christians, followers of Jesus. We're gonna partake in this. If that's not you, again, please don't feel uncomfortable. We wanna invite you uh, to just watch and, and, and see what is so, so meaningful to us. And I would just encourage you to ask somebody that you see, take communion. Why are you doing that? What does that mean to you? Have a conversation uh, with somebody. But this is for uh, Christians, for Jesus followers uh, only. It does not matter what denomination uh, you are. We, just, we would welcome you to take communion if, if you would say that you are a follower of Jesus. What you're gonna do is you're gonna come to the front and there's gonna be somebody with a basket of bread and then there will be someone with a cup and you'll take from that basket of, of bread and, uh, and you will hear that person that is serving you say that this is the body of Christ that has been broken for you. And then you will go to the cup and you will dip in the cup and you will hear someone say, this is the blood of Jesus that has been shed for you. You will then uh, take that and, and eat that and you can make your way back to your uh, seat. Jesus told us to, to have this meal in remembrance of what he's done, but also propelling us into uh, who we are today. Just a quick note for parents with kiddos. If your uh, kid is not yet a Christ follower, we would encourage you to still bring them along with you uh, when they come to, or when you come to the front, not to take communion, but just to be with you. It's a really good discipleship opportunity for you to be able to explain up close and personal, explain to your children exactly what is, uh, what's going on today. So we would encourage that. A couple of other just more logistical notes. We, we will do is we will start with our outside sections here. So this middle section, you two will stay seated for a moment. And when it's time for you to get up and come to the front, Blake will make you aware of that. What you're gonna do if you're on these outside sections, please make your way to the outside wall Go to the back of the room, come all the way to the middle and form two lines in this middle aisle coming up. There will be people serving on this side and this side and you'll go to the side where your uh, seat was, but we'll just make two lines coming up here if that makes sense. Give me a thumbs up if you understood that part. Very good. All right, balcony, you are free. When we start, you, it's free for all up there. You're the wild and crazy ones. And so you sat up there and it's just gonna be free for all. But we don't need you to come down. We will have a communion station that'll be right up here in the middle when we start. And seriously, whenever you're ready, you just can get up and make your way to that uh, communion table. The last thing that I will say um, is that 
If you're unable, if you wanna participate in communion this morning, but for some reason you're unable to come and make it to the front, that is completely okay. Uh, Jeremy Drake, who's right there in the back waving, he's the one, uh, and we'll have the, some of our other staff and volunteers looking out, but just flag him down and, uh, and we'd be happy to bring uh, the elements uh, over to you. So again, this is a time of invitation. Communion is, is a time of invitation for us to remember what God has done and for us to realize who we are uh, in him. We're gonna sing. When you get back to your seat, we will be in worship and song. Just would encourage you to take whatever posture of worship uh, that, that is, uh, is best fitting for you uh, in, this, in this moment. I would ask that you would stand. I'm gonna pray for us and then I'm gonna sit you back down. So just stand. I do wanna pray. And just kidding, I'm not gonna sit you back down because we're gonna sing. Thanks, Blake. Let's take a deep breath. Mark tells us that this is the good news of Jesus who is the Messiah, the Son of God that the redemption of all of creation, the rescue of my life and your life is held and wrapped up within who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And it's that which we're focused on this morning. And Holy Spirit, we just pray that as we enter this time of communion, that it would be genuine. Your word says that uh, God, if we, if we have anything even against one another, that we ought to make that right before we go and participate in communion. So God, if there is something that you need to bring up in our heart and mind, even now, that we need to take care of before we come and participate, we don't wanna be hypocrites, God. We wanna be fully uh, surrendered to you. So God, would you help guide us in, the, in our thinking there and our processing there? God, as we take the bread in the cup, Father, I just pray that it would not just be a testimony that stands for all that you have done for us, but God, that we would realize that this meal is the thing that defines us. This is who we are. We are those that have been rescued by your body and your blood. We are those that have been filled by your spirit and given a mission to announce the good news message of Jesus that has rescued us, but is for the rescue of the nations of the world. You have sent us out with this meal. This is a commissioning. God, I pray that we would go into our spheres of influence as we leave this morning with urgency to announce the good news message of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of the Son of God. Amen.